Today's event is the first in a three-part series that investigates the turbulent past and present of immigration and immigration policy in the United States. I invite you to join us on October 17th for our next program in the series, which will be a panel discussion co-sponsored by the Chinese Historical Society of New England on Boston and the Chinese Exclusion Act. I also invite you to take a look at a small installation we have in the sitting room on the first floor. It's right next to the membership office um, where we've set out some materials from the Athenaeum's collections that relate to immigration and immigration history here in the Boston area. Our guest this afternoon is Neil Swidey. He's a graduate of Tufts University and a staff writer for Boston Globe magazine, the author of three books of nonfiction, including Trapped Under the Sea, which was named one of the best books of 2014 by Amazon and Booklist. Mr. Swidey is a six-time winner of the Sigma Delta Chi Award from the Society of Professional Journalists, and his work has been featured in the Best American Science Writing, the Best American Crime Writing, and the Best American Political Writing. <laughs> As an outgrowth of his first book, The Assist, he founded the Alray Scholars Program, a mentoring and scholarship nonprofit that helps give Boston students a second chance at college. In February, Mr. Swidey's story on the historical roots of President Trump's anti-immigration rhetoric appeared in the Boston Globe, and just this past weekend, um, another story of his drawing parallels between the experiences of his own family and today's dreamers also appeared in the Globe magazine. This afternoon, Mr. Swidey will speak to us about the local origins of anti-immigration sentiment in the United States at the turn of the 20th century um, and how it relates to today. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Mr. Neil Swidey. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you all for coming today. First off, can everyone hear me okay? Great. Let me know if I drift. If I move too far from the mic, just raise your hand and I'll come back. Uh, first off, just a quick question. How many of you here in the crowd come from immigrant stock? <laughs> right answer. So anyone who didn't raise their hand is Wampanoag, Narragansett, or uh, what's that? Or Massachusetts, exactly, the tribe, not the state. Uh, one of the things I explore uh, in the story Hannah mentioned and the piece we're going to be, the discussion we're going to be talking about today, and in pretty much all my writing about immigration history, is that there are no new subjects in immigration. There are no new zingers or lines, there are no new flashpoints in immigration. It's just new people saying them. Because when you go back through the stacks, and you can find them in this beautiful library here, in the books here and in elsewhere, when you go through the uh, microfilm of newspapers uh, from the turn of the century or earlier, uh, when you go back to the colonial days, there is discussion about immigration. There is dissent about immigration. There is conflict around immigration. We are a nation of immigrants. 
Someone emailed me uh, after the peace this past Sunday to say, we're not a nation of immigrants. My ancestors came here uh, 250 years ago. And I said, you're still an immigrant. It's just, it's just a matter of how far back you look. I mean, that's the difference. And it's an important distinction because I think one of the things that you see when you go into immigration history is invariably people have a close the door behind me mentality. Uh, it's very uh, understandable when you think about it. And I try to uh, you know, immerse myself in that period and think about what it must have been like. And the motivation when you come here, as you do to, if you were immigrating, immigrating to any country, is to fit in. And so you want to do that. You want to feel as though you're moving through. Uh, and there is a danger, though, of, of that when, of that kind of the accelerating force of assimilation in forgetting, forgetting what happened. And that doesn't mean there are perfect parallels between now and then, and we're going to talk about some of those issues uh, now, but it does mean remembering, and also remembering the context of, of when things happen, because uh, we're a nation that talks often about our immigrant past, which is very different in the world. If you go to Japan, and I ask that uh, question here of everyone, if you come from immigrant stock, raise your hand, it would be a very different answer. The same, it would be a very different answer in Germany or France. It's something uh, special about this country uh, and, and, and how it began, uh, that immigration is integral to our history. But it's also a country that in times, in, in different periods, can turn on immigrants pretty quickly. And again, we're going to talk about distinctions about that and we'll have an interesting discussion period at this because I'm not making the argument that all immigration periods are the same and all immigrant groups are the same. There are important distinctions about that. But what happens in this country, if you look at the uh, kind of the, the wide lens is for long periods of time immigration is kind of an abstraction in this country and then big outside forces come in and those can be wars those can be economic downturns those are usually the two biggies when those happen things change and this country changes and the discussion changes and you get these periods you know, this is the quote that is often uh, attributed to, to Mark Twain, although he actually, there's no evidence he actually said it, but it's a great line. Uh, and I think it's very true with immigration. There are no perfect parallels, uh, and we're foolish to think that there are cycles that we can predict are going to happen here. But there are often these similarities that come back, and it, it, it serves us well to go back and, and understand those and look at those. So what, if you step back and look at the periods uh, of immigration in this country, uh, you realize in terms of immigration restriction, the federal government had no role in regulating immigration prior to 1882. Zero, zero role. So it was a state and local issue. And 
that often gets lost in the, in the discussion about immigration. So it went to the Supreme Court in, in 1882, and it was about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which we'll talk to in a bit, and I know the, the discussion, which sounds like a fascinating discussion that's going to be happening in here in October about that very issue, will um, telescope in on that. It's a fascinating period. Uh, we didn't see it as much here in this region because it was a regional issue, largely. The, um, you know, the combination of the gold rush and the building of the Transcontinental Railroad and the end of slavery, which often gets overlooked. Those were the three big drivers for Chinese migration coming in here and Chinese laborers. But mostly, it was starting to move to post-slavery south, but mostly it was a it's a western part of the country problem, and uh, there was a lot of dissension around that. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things that, that uh, I was struck by when, when looking at the history there was one of the leading critics of Chinese labor was a guy named Dennis Kearney. I don't know if people know him, but he, he was a, a guy who ran the Working Man's Party. Uh, so a big labor supporter. He was an Irish immigrant, uh, but he finished every speech with the Chinese must go. That was his line. It was his kind of drop the mic line <laughs> to uh, leave the crowd applauding. Uh, and it was very interesting. Two things I think are really important to think about that. One is that closed the door mentality. So here was a first generation, you know, it wasn't first generation, this was an Irish immigrant here who uh, came to this country who was talking about closing the doors, but closing the doors for a, a different uh, population. And there was racism that was part of that that I think you have to understand and appreciate. But there was also a legitimate argument that labor had about wages and the role of uh, immigrant labor coming in, lowering the bargaining power for labor for wages. So I think there's two things there that you have to go back to. It's not just an either-or issue. To really understand it and appreciate it, you have to see both of those sides and give them both credit on there. And call out the racism when it's racism, but also actually look at and explore with an open mind the issue about uh, wage uh, leverage. Uh, but stepping back a little bit before, speaking of uh, the Irish coming here, which is something we in this area know a lot more about, uh, you know, these were called coffin ships. These were before the big steamships were coming, and these were right after the, the, the potato famine. Uh, huge surge uh, in immigration from Ireland. They were called coffin ships for a reason because many people died on that treacherous journey. The improvement in technology uh, from just in a couple of decades from the means of transportation in the 1840s and 50s to the 1890s with the big steamships and the time, you know, from, uh, from weeks to a few days uh, that that was collapsing the, the sort of effort and the danger of making the journey over here. But that was the big move for uh, the Irish immigration that was coming in the mid-1800s. The other big group that was coming in was Germans. So there was a lot, two things that were happening in Germany in 1871 was the German unification 
so there was a lot of unrest happening in Germany around that, and there was also industrialization that was happening there. So many um, in the southern part of Germany were getting displaced. They were farmers that were getting displaced, and they came over here too. So those were the two big uh, spikes of immigration that really characterized what was happening in the mid-1800s. Now look at that spike. You see that spike going up here uh, of immigrants from Germany and from Ireland. You're over a million from uh, in an annual, and remember the country is a lot smaller than, than it is now, um, so that percentage gets much bigger. Uh, things that sometimes have nothing to do with immigration have a big impact, and nothing to do with immigration restrictions and regulation have a big impact. And in this case, the Civil War was a big thing. When you have a country at war, you tend not to have a lot of people coming to try to get into your country. Uh, so that has this sort of natural uh, uh, depressing of immigration numbers coming in. That happened um, there. Then, in, we, as we talked about, the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, when you go back and read uh, the language and the rhetoric around this, it's pretty stunning how blatant and, and how clear the racism was about keeping the, the Chinese out. Uh, <clears throat> there are often with immigrant groups different things that that become the peculiar uh, label of why this is a bad group coming in. And sometimes it has to do with whether families come. The Chinese were coming, generally men were coming, and so there was a lot of issue about prostitution and women were kept out because there was fears of prostitution coming in. Uh, there are, uh, with Irish, tended to be families that were coming and then it was the likely to be a, become a public charge was the issue. We're gonna have to, mouths we're gonna have to feed and all these families that have big families here, and how can we handle it? And I dare say some of the people <laughs> in this building here were the people talking about the Irish uh, at that time coming, uh, because it was the, the Brahmin class, it was a real threat to the Brahmin class here in, in Boston in particular. Uh, and as I argue, uh, and as other scholars uh, have argued more uh, convincingly, uh, a lot of the discussion that happens in the late 1800s that is about Eastern European and Italian, Southern European, Eastern European Jews coming in, a lot of that rhetoric is really delayed complaints from the Brahmins about we really missed it when the Irish came and the Irish took over and we didn't really fight the way we should have, so let's fight now. You know, you see that actually when you go deep into the letters, the private correspondence of some of the, the people here that I'm going to talk about, that was their big issue. So with the Chinese labor, again, a kind of a regional issue, but that forces the issue of federal oversight of immigration coming in. It went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yes, the federal government has a role, which is kind of stunning that people think the federal government didn't have a role, but that it took to 1882 for the government to kind of step up to the plate about that and sort of take that role. And it was really in this idea of regulating out a whole group of people and just keeping them away. 
And so here we're looking at the rise, the spike, and then what happens here. And you have two things that happen. One is you have a climate that starts to depress the numbers coming in because immigrants from other countries hear about the, the, the negative reception. Uh, and then you have the legislation that kind of comes on top of that and certifies and sort of solidifies that uh, trend to reduce the immigration. And I started to think of this when I was doing this research as the sort of immigration version of Newton's third law of motion, that every action has this equal and opposite reaction, so that you have this big spike of people coming in, and then people say, wait, we have to stop this. Or you have um, what was happening in the um, 1880s, 1870s uh, through the 80s was uh, depression, you know, big depression that was happening here before sort of regulation of the economy and a lot of speculation that happened there. And then you go around looking for why is this happening and you look for the newest people coming in and often that's what people conclude. And so after the Chinese were excluded, you see what happens in the 1890s is the source within Europe, still most of our immigrants are coming from Europe, but the source within Europe changes dramatically. So the red line is the traditional, more established Europeans that were coming from Northern and Western Europe, and the yellow line is Southern and Eastern Europe. And you see how that's happening. And again, those numbers go much higher. Look at, we're getting up to 6 million. Uh, and that's because of what's happening in the world, what's happening here, both in terms of the need and the desire for uh, mill owners, particularly, to get cheap labor coming in. Uh, this kind of humming need to kind of keep this humming economy going with labor. There had been a lot of automation that moved. So it used to be in the 1800s that you needed to be fairly skilled to kind of run the operations that you had in the mills during the kind of the first Industrial Revolution. By the second Industrial Revolution, there was a lot more automation. You really needed just hands and legs to move in. And that's why there was so much child labor, because you needed little hands to kind of fit into these parts. You didn't need skill. So that, again, reduced the, the bargaining power because you just needed people to come in. Uh, but, but, but so there was a desire from some people here for, for more immigration to come in to, to keep those plants humming. And then you had the transportation advances of, you know, I don't have to kind of risk my life and sort of roll the dice on a long journey across. I can get there in five days. Um, and it is in that climate, in the 1890s, that three Brahmins in Boston got together and founded the Immigration Restriction League. Uh, and these were Harvard-educated, kind of the best and the brightest. Uh, but it's really interesting to think about, and it's, I think, something that is certainly I didn't fully appreciate until doing research on this, is just what life was like for the Brahmins in the late 1800s. Uh, uh, there was a lot of a sense of decline. 
that point. There was a sense of um, <clears throat> the kind of limitless futures that our grandparents and even our parents had was gone. Uh, so you had in politics, the Irish had kind of taken over. The Irish were running the, the, politi the, the political scene. Um, some uh, Brahmins had made the successful movement uh, to adapt to uh, industry and what was happening, you know, that's where you have the sort of the fidelities of the world kind of moving towards investment banking and other issues, but many others didn't pivot fast enough, and so their, their uh, resources were, were dwindling. Uh, and the birth rate was remarkably uh, troubling for the Brahmin class. So James Michael Curley famously said, we're, 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 we already know where this is going because a good Irish family has seven or eight kids and a good Brahmin family has dogs. <laughs> and he was right, you know, that, that you can't kind of argue with those um, statistics. And so um, suicide rates actually went way up within Brahmins. Um, there was a lot of uh, depression that was happening in there. Divorce rates went way up um, and birth rates uh, uh, plummeted. So that was the, the idea of seeing our better days. Uh, and so in some ways, this trio uh, who put together the Immigration Restriction League were, and the language in some of these things is remarkably similar, we're trying to make America great again. The, when I tell you that language is remarkably similar, when I was doing this research, I kept turning to my wife and saying, you, now, now, let me read you another line and see if you, you read today's paper and I'll read you what I'm reading from 100 years ago and see the language and the phrasing. It's, it, it's stunning how similar some of it was. This is Prescott Farnsworth Hall. Uh, and he is the, uh, he's a very interesting character and in many ways not given his fair due for how influential he was uh, because he was he wasn't one of these um, uh, Brahmins who uh, inherited money and was just going to kind of while away his his troubles uh, over liquid lunches at the Somerset Club he was going to do something about it uh, and he didn't have um, you know, he's a lawyer by training, went to Harvard Law School after a Harvard undergrad, of course. And uh, he started thinking, we've got answers to this. We can change the direction of how things are going here. And he used sort of an early um, political science sort of view on this. And it really, in some ways, was one of the kind of, it was a proto-Washington think tank based in Boston, is how the approach of the IRL was. It was, we are going to crunch the numbers, we're going to do the deep thinking about this, and we're going to influence the influencers. We're going to give them the material as... Um, uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation or the Brookings Institution might do now. Uh, we're going to write essentially op-ed pieces, which they did, and they sent them to newspaper editors around the country and to politicians. We're going to draft legislation, and we're going to kind of put this social science overlay onto it with numbers, and we're going to change this. 
He didn't do it alone. So two other very interesting and distinguished characters were with him on that. So Robert de Courcy Ward, who was a salt and stall but on his mother's side, um, was one of the first climatologists. He was a, a, a brilliant uh, researcher on, on that end. And Charles Warren was a brilliant legal jurist. He went on to um, found the Harvard Club. He went on to uh, be a, an, a, a deputy attorney general drafted the Espionage Act, so going up into World War I, he was extremely influential. Then was a historian, a legal historian, won a Pulitzer Prize for his legal history. So these are not lightweights by any stretch of the imagination. But they, um, they have an agenda. They're convinced that they're right about this, and in some ways unpersuadable, even when evidence to the contrary um, would, should call into some of the questions of some of the early assumptions. And they go after it. And they find this man as one of uh, their strongest allies, Henry Cabot Lodge, who by the early 1990s had moved from the Congress to the U.S. Senate. Uh, Again, a distinguished um, scholar before he was a uh, lawmaker. And I was struck. I spent a lot of time at the Houghton Library at, at Harvard uh, going through uh, old correspondence. And I was struck at how solicitous, in some ways, Lodge was of Prescott Hall, who had no, I mean, I, I told you kind of about the role he was playing. But in terms of a public role, very few people knew who Prescott Fonsworth Hall was. Everyone knew who Henry Cabot Lodge was. But I don't know if you can read this, where he says, uh, anything you can do should be done at once. Uh, he's asking for Prescott to kind of uh, engage all the levers that he has uh, to try to sort of gin up support for what he's trying to do, which is pass an Immigration Restriction Act. And the Immigration Restriction Act at this point is pretty clear. And in their writings, they're very clear. And it goes like this. Immigration, per se, is not bad, but we used to get good immigrants. <laughs> and now we get low-quality immigrants. That's the argument. There's no... Um, debate about that when you actually read their writing. That's what they're saying. Uh, and they use uh, statistics to try to support that case, but uh, statistics that, when you actually peel away at them, are fairly thin and dubious. Uh, but that's the argument. And some of the, some of the issues, again, there's always this danger of you're comparing. So in some ways, you're comparing today's immigrants with our hazy memory of how the good immigrants used to be. Uh, sometimes the education levels are different of immigrants coming here. Uh, but sometimes you just can't remember how sort of rough around the edges maybe those immigrants were before they became assimilated. It's a kind of normal human phenomenon. 
So in some of the corners, you can see the foreigners furnish one and a half times as many criminals, two and a half times as many insane, and three times as many paupers. Uh, we're getting a great many immigrants who are below the mental, moral, and physical average of both our country and their own. The physical thing kicks, kills me because Prescott Farnsworth Hall was a homebody who was this frail man who, who seldom ventured outside his home. He had this house in, in Brookline, and he could name every uh, flower and insect in his garden because he spent all day there. He didn't talk to anybody else. He had a number of infirmities, uh, many of them hard to diagnose. Uh, um, he was not a strapping sort of uh, Charles Atlas kind of guy, and yet... The arguments, the intellectual arguments are these guys, these immigrants were getting, not only can't they read, but they're like weak. Uh, and it, it, it is interesting that way. What is interesting in this, this think tank formula that they had is even though the Brahmins were in decline, even though, so Prescott's grandfather had been one of 12 children, I believe, and uh, he was an only child, and his mother uh, had been previously married, and her, husband, her first husband had committed suicide, and, and then she had lost their first child, and so when she remarried and had Prescott, she was scared to death that she, he was going to die. So she babied him and kind of uh, made it so he couldn't really venture outside the house. Uh, Prescott's really supportive... Uh, wife uh, wrote a book later and she talked about this and she talked about kind of the shame of how the die had been cast at a young age because his mother and that sad history of her first child had, had kind of made it so that he was afraid. And so I think what happened with Prescott is a lot of debate happened inside his mind in his head, and he convinced himself of a lot of things, and he was a voracious reader, and he, but he found the things to support his thinking, and maybe to uh, explain why he had no children himself, he was an only child, so that this, he was kind of the living embodiment of the decline of the Brahmins himself, but rather than kind of come to terms with those forces that were there, it was easier to kind of focus on this outside force of immigration coming in. Which, again, I don't mean to discount. This was a destabilizing force when you have a huge infusion of immigrants coming in, many of them uneducated uh, immigrants. Uh, it does change the dynamics. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the reason. Uh, as he argued in some of his writings, and his writings got darker as the years went on, he argued that immigrants were killing Brahmin babies because they were not being born. It was sort of this argument, kind of an operation rescue sort of thinking of the unborn. Uh, but it got very dark later because he was saying essentially that um, because um, the sort of uh, aristocratic class sees a future that doesn't look bright for their offspring and doesn't want their offspring to have to be working in a factory along, alongside an immigrant Italian, that they won't have children, that they sort of don't have more children, and that, that those are then unborn babies that are the responsibility of the immigrants coming in. Uh, 
here's what's interesting about this group. They don't, as I said, they, for Hall, he kind of lives a lot in his head. The other guys, Warren and Ward, are really kind of out there, and, and they pull Hall into this, and they, even though they're in decline as a class, they still have that privilege and that sense of privilege, and they just call up. Ellis Island was kind of brand new. It was only a few years old at the time. Um, in the early 1900s, and they called up the director and said, we're coming to inspect. <laughs> and the director at Ellis Island says, okay, come. So they each made several trips to Ellis Island, and they had notations, uh, elaborate sort of uh, descriptions of what they found. And it's interesting. So this is uh, a one of the inspections that they would do at Ellis Island. So for some reason... Ellis Island, when you came through, the vast, vast majority of people were just moved through quickly and came in without very, the, the percentage of people turned away was very small. And again, prior to World War I, you didn't need a passport, um, so you just needed to buy a steamship and then not be in one of these excluded classes, so you, you weren't Chinese, you weren't um, a, um, likely to become a, a public charge, which means you had to have some evidence. You didn't really have to have a sponsor. That's kind of a myth that you had to have a sponsor, but you had to have some evidence that you were going to be able to kind of work. So if you were disabled, they were less likely to let you through on that. Um, you couldn't have been uh, uh, insane, um, although their, meaning, their means of detecting that in a quick <laughs> inspection were, after a long journey, were not that rigorous. Uh, this thing they were obsessed with, they really worried about trachoma, which was a sort of mildly contagious um, disease of the eye. Uh, and they had this button hook that they would just uh, sort of pull up the eye and do these quick checks, checks moving through. And the kids who were coming through were petrified of this. Because you imagine, it's sort of like you're in Disney World and you see this, you're waiting in the long queue and you kind of see, oh, what's going to go on? What, what? What, what's the beginning of the ride look like? And then you see this guy with a button hook. That's what the beginning of the ride looks like. And some kids refuse, you know, there are pictures of them on the floor just wailing, don't put me through that. Um, but, uh, and if they saw any signs of that, a lot of people were sent home. Of that small percentage of people who were not let through, again, a very small percentage, of that small percentage, a lot of people had some kind of uh, what would look like sort of conjunctivitis, and, and they were sent home for that. And then families were kind of divided on that, and then the family had to make the decision, do I go back with my 11-year-old? Or, do, you know, there were some crazy, heartbreaking separations that happened. But again, most people came through. Uh, and I just, they were given it unrivaled access at Ellis Island very early on. And, and I was sort of struck reading their detailed reports that they were obsessed about literacy. That's the only thing they seemed to care about. So I wanted to kind of this rich tapestry of all these immigrants coming in and what was happening. What was, and it was all about, can they read or not? Because this became the proxy for them. They realized, aside from um, the Chinese, uh, which had kind of gotten through when no one was really paying attention as a nation just in the, in the West Coast, uh, they were worried about uh, being able to just say, we don't want Italians and Russians coming in, so we can't actually do that, so let's find a proxy for that. And what they found was literacy. They said, if you can't come, if you can't read in your native language, 
that means you're low-quality immigrant and we don't want you in there. So that's what they started in the 1890s onward. They started pushing it through. It got close a couple of times. In 1913, it got very close. It passed both houses of Congress, and then right before he left office, uh, Taft vetoed it with great reluctance. And Prescott Hall had, at this point, he'd been working for years now on this issue, and had come close before. Cleveland, President Cleveland had vetoed it once before. He thought he was going to be okay with Taft. Taft sort of, Taft had a, he would summer here in Massachusetts, was uh, up in Beverly. He was kind of connected with the, the Brahmins of, of Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, they felt that they had finally overcome the, the lobby of the steamship companies, which were making a lot of money on immigrants, and they were a force to be reckoned with. And when Taft vetoed it, Hall was despondent. And this is what he said, to hell with Jews, Jesuits, and steamships. Uh, he thought, that's the problem in this country. But they didn't give up. They went back at it again, and then Woodrow Wilson was elected. Now, Woodrow Wilson, um, he's kind of the, for nativists, he's sort of the great white hope. Because Wilson, before he became president, remember, was a historian and a president of Princeton University. And he wrote a massive five-volume history of the U.S. And in it, he described Eastern and Southern Europeans as being of the lowest class, having neither nor energy, neither skill nor energy, nor any initiative of great intelligence. Prescott Hall couldn't have scripted that better himself, and that was in one of the volumes that Wilson wrote, so they figured, we're golden. Wilson vetoed this. Wilson had a kind of, you can look at it, with so, as with so much with Woodrow Wilson, you could look at it one of two ways. Either he had a kind of a clarifying sort of pang of conscience that he had been wrong to misjudge a whole um, swath of Europe, based on maybe his, you know, his interactions with just a couple of people. Uh, or there was a political issue. The Democrats were getting some immigrants who were voting for them. Uh, the Republicans had before as well. There was a political calculus there of, do you turn off potential voters? Um, so he vetoes this. Now Hall is despondent, uh, even more than he was before. But then another one of those outside forces comes in, and it's World War I. So 1914, from 1914, we don't get, the U.S. doesn't get involved uh, in fighting in World War I until 1917, but for those three years, uh, the rise in anti-German sentiment in this country is stunning, and it changes so quickly. And what is really remarkable about it is that German-Americans were the model immigrant group nationally. They were the most assimilated group. Particularly, we don't see it as much here because they weren't as big of a force here. But in the Midwest, Germans, they owned businesses, not just breweries, but they owned all the breweries, obviously. Uh, they owned lots of businesses. They were kind of chamber of commerce people. Uh, there were a lot of um, uh, regional politicians who were of German heritage. Newspaper publishers, many of German heritage, they were an established go-to group. And the Germans, interestingly, 
even though they were fully assimilated, they were a group that kind of always remembered their immigrant past. And so every time Prescott Hall and that group kind of got close to getting something through, they were sort of checkmated by influential Germans from the Midwest, German Americans, because they had sort of an appreciation uh, that it could um, change quickly for them as well. They had no idea, I think, how quickly it did change for them. It is stunning uh, how this country, uh, the rhetoric around German Americans changed. So the Immigration Act of 1917 then comes to pass, and now you have a silenced German American group, and you have this, the cornerstone of the Immigration Act is a literacy test. It's in your native language, but you have to be literate. There were also a wider class, the Asiatic Bard Zone, so it wasn't just um, China now, it was Japan and other parts of Asia that were blocked. There was a new $8 a head tax, which kept poor people uh, away from there. It was, uh, and it was the first kind of uh, uh, expansive, wide-scale federal framework for regulating uh, immigration, and it passes. It passes, and the Hall and Ward and uh, Warren go to the Union Club, and they have dinner to celebrate, and they say, we're going to see where do we go next? Because they weren't done. But it's interesting, it doesn't keep out Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans because two things have happened by then. One is over those periods from the mid-1890s um, to 1917, a lot of those countries, the Southern and Eastern European countries, uh, got much better at uh, primary education. So more people came, were literate in their native language. So by that time, it had kind of changed. It was sort of a problem for the past. Uh, the other thing that happened is it sort of totally excluded um, Jews who came in there because uh, they, th Jewish males learned to read through, by learning the Torah. So it sort of missed, and you could just sort of see them scratching their head. How did we forget that? Um, World War I happens, and uh, that automatically depresses immigration again. When something is happening, people are sort of locked. The new passport regulations come in. Um, Prescott Hall uh, realizes that his life's work didn't do what he wanted it to do. It didn't solve his own problems. It didn't solve the problems even that he thought. Uh, but they kind of keep working on it, and uh, he dies in 1921 right after a very... Um, uh, rigorous and draconian uh, act passed in 1921. The big one, and that set the stage for 1924, the Johnson-Reed Act, uh, in some ways is a stunning piece of legislation that really dramatically kind of turned the clock back because what it did was it indexed the allowable percentage of immigrants coming in based on what the, the 1890 census happened. So it sort of really, literally turned back the clock and said, if you have a percentage of what we allowed in from your country in 1890, which for the census would have been again 1880s uh, coming in, so it sort of it, it turned the clock back. And this gives you a sense of what happens. That's lawful immigration that happens after the literacy test and then after the 20s, it goes down to almost nothing. Except if you're Eastern, uh, Western, or Northern European, and then come on in, because um, it really determines. So look at the the quotas that happen there. 
If you were from Greece, it went down to 100 people that were allowed in from tens of thousands. Turkey, Syria, Egypt, 100, 100. Italy went down to 3,800 from tens of thousands that were there before. But from Germany, 51,000. From Great Britain, 34,000. An unintended consequence when you have a draconian law like that is you create a new problem, which is something we never heard of before. Illegal immigration. It didn't exist uh, in, in any meaningful way prior to the 1920s and those acts. And then you have new scholarship is showing um, immigrants kind of coming in, southern and eastern Europeans and others coming in through the Canadian border coming in on there. Uh, also, it, it uh, didn't factor in people from the western hemisphere. So Mexicans and others were not governed by that. Uh, this gives you a sense of, over time, this is the percentage of foreign-borns in our country. And you see it going up and hitting the, the top of the scale, and those various laws happening. And then it goes way down from the 20s to the 50s. 65 was when the quota law was repealed and replaced, and it starts moving back up. So we're around where we were when it made everyone so nervous, which is around 135 to 14%. So it's not an issue of, it's not, it should be a surprise that what we're talking about makes people nervous right now, because we're at a level of percentage of foreign-born when it made people nervous before. Just going to very quickly kind of, I wrote about this on Sunday, which is, there's a, there's, uh, an issue that happens where people say, my ancestors came here the right way, they came here legal. And uh, that's, that, that's great, particularly if you know that to be a fact, and you've actually done the research, and you realize they didn't make up some story about having a job that they didn't have, uh, because a lot of people were making some stories as they were being moved through that line pretty quickly. But remember also, prior to World War I, you pretty much just had to buy a steamship ticket. That's how you came here legally. Um, so. You know, historians talk a lot about presentism and how it's, you know, this is happening a lot with Washington was a slave owner. What do we make of that? Well, can you go back in time? Do you have to, you have to understand that period? I think with immigration, it kind of works the opposite way. We, the presentism sort of instinct is to kind of do a reverse presentism. And these immigrants today aren't like the upstanding law-abiding immigrants of the past. And in some cases, they may not be. But in other cases, that has to really be rigorously interrogated if it's supposed to be considered truthful. Um, what do we make of nativists today? So Charles Warren, Pulitzer Prize winning, um, founded the Harvard Club, uh, U.S. Deputy Attorney General. The Charles Warren Center at Harvard is the most distinguished place for Northern American history scholarship right now in the country. To get a Charles Warren Fellow is to be uh, is a big feather in your cap if you're a young and up and coming historian. They're just when I was talking with them and doing this research, they're just trying to reconcile that now and how do they deal with that? This person who whose widow left his money to build this thing, which a lot of great scholarship has come out of the Charles Warren Center. But how do you deal with the kind of nativist piece uh, of his past? So I ended this. I went to. Prescott Hall's house in Brookline. It's a beautiful house. And I knocked on the door, and I met this woman who lives in the house today. Had no idea, very bright woman, had no idea 
who had lived in her house before because who knows Prescott Hall? I mean, uh, and we're talking and coming through and uh, she's a, a noted radiologist. Her husband is a, a hand surgeon at Children's, runs the chief of the department of Children's, so very distinguished people. And then I reminded her about this quote, Jews, Jesuits, and steamships. And she just stopped and she said, well, I'm Jewish and my husband is an Irish Catholic. Uh, I guess we kind of, uh, uh, in, in some ways, you know, the fear was that these Jews and Jesuits were going to dilute what made America so great. That was Prescott Hall's argument. And in his house today is living proof that he was wrong. That these people, you know, a, a, a noted world-renowned uh, hand surgeon for, for, for a children's is a, came from the Jesuits, you know. And this... Uh, 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 woman Janet Barr, uh, a noted uh, uh, radiologist. So right there gives you kind of the sense of this man who never kind of left his mind and certainly left his garden. He would, had he stayed around longer, would have seen enough of his <laughs> enough of history change in his own garden, in his own house, to realize the kind of fallacy of thinking that you can. Uh, change things just by turning the clock back. Um, so, so that's it. We're going to um, move to a period for questions right now. I'll just quickly mention, uh, while I have a chance for a plug, is in lieu of any speaker's fee, the money is getting donated today to the Al Ray Scholars Fund, which Hannah had mentioned grew out of my first book. If anyone is interested in learning more about that or becoming a mentor, uh, please see me afterwards. It's, it's a great program that uh, is helping Boston students who start college. We're really good in Boston right now at getting inner city kids to college, but two out of three are not graduating. And that means they're, they're coming back with lots of debt and no earning power that you would get with a college degree. So this program works one-on-one -on -one to get them to, um, to graduate and then pay it forward that way. So I'm happy to take some questions now, and thank you so much for all your time.